This is Workers' Comp Matters, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, the only legal talk network program that focuses entirely on the people and the law in workers' compensation cases. Nationally recognized trial attorney, expert, and author, Alan S. Pierce is a leader committed to making a difference when workers' comp matters. Welcome to another edition of Workers' Comp Matters here on the Legal Talk Network. My name is Alan Pierce. I'm with the Salem, Massachusetts law firm of Pierce, Pierce, and Napolitano. We represent injured workers in workers' compensation, social security, disability, and related matters. Before we begin, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Case Pacer, a practice management software dedicated to the busy trial attorney. Um, it's a very good product. To learn more, go to casepacer.com. And also, we'd like to thank PI Now. If you want to find a local qualified private investigator anywhere in the United States, go to PINow.com to learn more. Today's guest is a law student. It's Alex Lonnett. He is a third year student at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. He has worked with law firms uh, that practice extensively in the field of civil litigation during his school. And I met Alex. Um, recently in Phoenix at the annual meeting and induction dinner of the College of Workers' Compensation Lawyers. And Alex was the first place winner of the 2017 College of Workers' Compensation Lawyers Student Writing Contest. Alex's paper, the subject of which we're going to discuss in a few moments, extensively examined a very interesting issue, something I've seen in my practice. It's the issue of third-party liability waivers in employment contracts. Uh, he will explain what that means. Alex plans on taking the bar exam and passing the bar exam and practicing in the fields of litigation and workers' compensation. So, Alex, welcome to Workers' Comp Matters. Thanks for having me today, Alan. All right. I'm going to read the title of your paper, and then uh, perhaps you can define the terms a little bit for us. The, the paper is entitled, Employee Waivers of the Right to Sue, third-party tortfeasors, law, policy, recent developments, and implications for workers' compensation and the injured worker it serves. Very interesting yet lengthy topic. We all know that when workers are injured at work, their remedy is workers' compensation benefits and their employer, the person they work for, as part of the deal, the bargain that was created, that created workers' comp law, cannot be sued for negligence or civil liability or be considered a tortfeasor. But there is a whole area of law where somebody or some company other than the employer, if they or he or it caused the injury, that entity could be sued in tort and the workers' comp insurer and the injured worker share in any recovery. So tell us what these waivers are all about. All right. Um well, Alan, these waivers are, I think, uh, the first thing to note about them is that they're in employment contracts, and they're really prevalent among certain types of workers. So most of the cases that have been litigated up to the Supreme Court level deal with security guards, uh, but temporary workers, um, you know, temps, so to say, a lot of agencies that furnish employees also contain these provisions. And what it does is when the employee signs the employment contract, he gives up the right to sue any negligent or reckless third party 
that is a client of his employer. So using the example of a security guard, say someone works for Allied Barton or Universal, one of the big security firms, and they have a contract with a warehouse. Uh, They send security guard Joe to the warehouse. Um, Security guard Joe's walking around. There's a gaping hole in the floor. He trips and breaks his leg. Normally, the security guard would be able to collect workers' comp from his immediate employer, which would be the security firm, Allied, Universal, whoever. And then if he wanted to, he would have the opportunity to sue the owner of that warehouse. When he has signed a third-party waiver in his employment contract, he can't sue the owner of that warehouse. So he is limited to just workers' compensation benefits. So I guess in a nutshell, that's what these things are. And they're quite prevalent among uh, you know, lower-paid temporary workers. It would seem to me that the workers' comp insurance company in that case wouldn't be happy because if they're paying benefits because somebody else caused the injury and they would otherwise be able to recover monies if that other entity were sued, they could not uh, get paid back what they paid and the employer's premium would be affected. Yet from the employer's perspective, They have customers that they bring their employees to, and they don't want to alienate their customer base by having them being exposed to a lawsuit. So how do the workers' comp insurers feel about these waivers, or or are they pretty much a silent uh, participant in this? Yes. uh, Obviously, you know, if I was a, if I owned a workers' comp insurance company, you know, I wouldn't be a fan of this. But, you know, generally they are fairly uh, silent with regard to this. And usually, the uh, to kind of further illustrate the point you made, the premises-owning uh, company, whenever they're hiring a security firm or a temporary staffing firm, a lot of times they make that firm sign a waiver of subrogation, whereby the workers' comp carrier agrees that it won't subrogate any amount that is paid out, you know, should the employee... Uh, you know, breach the term of his contract where he goes and sues the uh, premises owner. So, um, yeah, there there really isn't a whole lot out there on the feelings of these insurance carriers, but I would agree with you that it's, uh, you know, it really does, it's not beneficial to them either. Yeah, as a matter of fact, you raise an interesting point because in most jurisdictions, not only does the injured worker have a right to sue a negligent third party, but if that injured worker, for whatever reason, decides not to sue, or in the case of a contract, cannot sue, the workers' comp insurer isn't party to that contract, and it can sue on its own. So these um, subrogation waivers do the same purpose. Now, it seems to me, at first blush, as a lawyer, two things strike me as being fundamentally wrong with these contracts. First of all, you are having somebody as a condition of employment releasing somebody for something that hasn't happened and may not happen. And to me, that seems particularly odious. And secondly, a person looking for work, especially in a lower paying job, doesn't really have much bargaining power when he or she tries to get a job and they get this probably legalese document put in front of them that they sign and they don't really know what they're doing. How have those theories or any other theories played out in the courts when these waivers have been tested? Well, um, you kind of danced around it with your first theory. And, you know, that is some lawyers have argued that these are unconscionable. 
you know, they're unduly oppressive and unconscionable. That theory has not been successful yet at either in a, a trial court or at an appellate court level. And, you know, I can kind of understand some of the court's reasoning behind that. I mean, if we look at some of these arbitration provisions that are in employment contracts, that are in, you know, cell phone contracts, you know, we give up our constitutionally guaranteed right to a jury trial all the time. So from that angle, I do understand that a court might say, well, you know, you wave away a lot of things each day and you don't realize it. So we're not going to call this unconscionable. To your second point, that seems to be gaining a little bit more traction. And in the New Jersey Superior Court Appellate Division decision of Vitali v. Shearing Plow that the New Jersey Supreme Court has actually just accepted certiorari on it, so they will hear that argument. In Vitali, the judge highlights all of those points you made. You know, she pointed out that the plaintiff, who was a security guard, who was injured at, I believe, a, either a power plant or an oil refinery, uh, I, I can't remember that little detail, um, she, you know, brings up that this is a guy who has a high school education. He works for a, you know, low hourly wage None of these guys are unionized, or most of them aren't. And you're right, there's very little bargaining power. I think the plaintiff in Vitali admitted that he never even read this provision. Uh, he didn't even know it existed until he was injured and wanted to sue the tortfeasor, the person who caused his injury. So that is gaining some traction uh, with the Vitali decision. And that was one of the factors that kind of led the judge to find that it's while not unconscionable, it was void against the public policy of the workers' compensation statute that was designed to kind of protect, you know, the laborers and the workers of that state. And I, I do kind of understand and I would agree with that. So, yes, I would say that second theory is gaining traction. Um, we'll see if it kind of keeps rolling at the New Jersey Supreme Court level. But as to whether, you know, it's unconscionable or just unduly oppressive, uh, that argument doesn't seem to be flying with courts, at least not yet. Mm -hmm. You've surveyed cases from around the country. Uh, I would imagine that uh, different results have occurred in different jurisdictions for some of the reasons that you've discussed. Could you speak to some of that? Well, yes and no. You know, the first thing is for an issue that is as widespread as these waivers are, you know, you referenced you're in Massachusetts and you've dealt with these. I've talked to practitioners in Pittsburgh who have uh, dealt with these waivers, and I met lawyers from all over the country at the College of Workers Compensation Lawyers Symposium in Phoenix who said that they've dealt with these things. For something as widespread as that, it's really only made appellate case law four times, uh, and that it happened first in Arkansas. Uh, then in your home state uh, with Horner v. Boston Edison, then in the District of Columbia, and uh, then with Bowman. And really, they all reached the same results. They all upheld these waivers. It wasn't until this past year in 2016 when the Superior Court Appellate Division of New Jersey heard Vitali v. Shearing Plow that, uh, you know, we kind of saw a minority position emerging. So, you know, the Arkansas, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania and D.C., higher courts have all held that these waivers, you know, are, you know, they, they are able to be upheld and they're not void as either unconscionable or void against public policy per the workers' compensation statutes. So in terms of seeing a minority position evolve, we're really kind of just starting to see that, um, you know, with this Vitali case. 
At this point, why don't we take a short break and we'll come back and discuss the Vidali case in a little more detail with our guest, Alex Lonnett. We'll be right back. Case Pacer is the leading practice management software for today's workers' comp and plaintiff's attorney. Named one of the fastest growing companies in America by Inc. Magazine, we've given attorneys and their staff the ability to work from anywhere on any device. By automating workflows and streamlining non-revenue generating tasks, CasePacer enables firms to grow their practice at minimal cost. To see CasePacer in action, contact us today at casepacer.com. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a -a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PINow understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Welcome back. Workers' Comp Matters with Alan Pierce talking to Alex Lonnett about third-party liability waivers. Alex, we were chatting a bit uh, about other areas of human endeavors where people release their rights or give up rights as a condition for some other reason other than working. What, Maybe to help our listeners understand uh, this a little better, what are some of the other areas where we may have ourselves come into contact with waivers of our rights? Well, Alan, being from Salem, I assume you're a Red Sox fan? Of course. Of course. Yeah, well, uh, you know, if you went to a Red Sox game last season or if you went to any other MLB game or, uh, you know, professional sporting event, uh, you very well might have waived your right to sue the sports franchise, the um, stadium owner, the various vendors within the stadium. When you presented that ticket and walked through the gates, a lot of, uh, you know, professional sporting event tickets include boilerplate waivers on the back or when you, you know, buy them online and you click through, uh, you know, when you get that long agreement and everyone just clicks agree anyways and, you know, gets to the payment part, you know, a lot of those include waivers of the ability to sue the sports team, the stadium owning company. So uh, these are very prevalent. You know, cell phone contracts are another big one. You know, cable contracts, you know, Netflix, Hulu, things like this. Uh, we waive our right to sue someone who wronged us, uh, you know, many times in one day. It, it's really interesting to think about. Yeah, yeah. Now, obviously, there's a big distinction between, you know, if I choose to go to, I'm in Pittsburgh, so if I choose to go to a Steelers game and, you know, something happens and, I get, you know, I break my leg or something, you know, I chose to do that. I chose to give up my Sunday afternoon and do that. Uh, you know, the plaintiff in Vitali, you know, uh, Mr. Vitali, uh, he didn't, you know, he didn't have a choice. He had to go to work. These other plaintiffs, you know, they had to go to work to support their family. So I think there is a big distinction between going to a sporting event, getting a certain cell phone carrier versus, you know, going to work every day and making a living, which, you know, is necessary. Yeah, or going parasailing or renting a jet ski. I mean, you name it. Our lives are probably filled with legal waivers of our rights. So tell us a little bit, what's the story in Vitaly? I think, you know, from looking at the cases that you cited, they pretty much, as you said, 
coming out of the security field or the the temp labor field where a temporary labor supplier sends people to work in a factory and they might have their hand cut off by a defective machine and can't sue the uh, owner of the factory for having a defective machine. So how did Vitaly reach its way to the uh, Supreme Court of New Jersey? Okay, well, uh, Philip Vitaly, that's the plaintiff's name, he actually wasn't a security guard per se. He was a manager of security guards. And uh, I just have my memory refreshed. Shearing Plow is actually a uh, chemical company. So I believe this was a uh, you know manufacturing facility where uh, he worked for Allied Barton, and they had a contract to guard that facility. And while he was there uh, working one of his shifts, you know, kind of patrolling and making sure the security guards were at their stations and properly uniformed, so on and so forth, he fell down a set of stairs. And I believe one of the stairs was actually missing a tread, so his foot went through. He fell down and uh, sustained pretty serious injuries. So he goes and sues the you know, Shearing Plow, who owned the manufacturing facility where he was injured, and Shearing Plow moved for summary judgment. Uh, the trial court denies summary judgment, kind of foreshadowing what the appellate court would do. Mr. Vitale actually got a verdict at trial, and Shearing Plow then appealed to the New Jersey Superior Court Appellate Division. It appealed the denial of summary judgment. Um, and then that's where we get our decision that, you know, strikes down these waivers and employment contracts. So that's kind of what happened. And, you know, you referenced earlier the you know sophistication level of a lot of these workers. You know, uh, Judge Koblitz in her decision actually, you know, references that, you know, Mr. Vitale has a high school education and he, you know, just kind of signed his employment contract one day in an Allied Barton field contract and didn't read it and, you know, went to work the next day. So, you know, that's really the mechanics of how a lot of these waivers operate. You know, people come into work, they sign it, they don't read it, and, uh, you know, they go on their way and then unfortunately something happens and it comes back to bite. Uh, so that's the story of Vitaly, so to say. Yeah. And, you know, we talked about two of the reasons that somebody like me who represents injured workers would have trying to challenge these contracts uh, that contain these waivers. One would be the being void against public policy or the onerous nature uh, of this. The second would be the, I guess, what the law calls a an adhesion contract, an unfair bargaining position where an injured worker or a prospective employee, rather, you know, just doesn't have the power to bargain equally. Uh, the third factor that, that you identified, you called the social ramifications of these waivers in the modern workforce. And that's, to me, an intriguing category because we are in a different workforce today in the first quarter of the 21st century than we were when I first started where we do have these new relationships. We have a lot more companies that provide labor. We have the Uber and Lyft community where the gig economy, where there is a blending or not a clear distinction of who your employer actually is and whether you are truly an employee, an independent contractor, or something in between. So as we close, and as you kind of predict the trend, uh, if you can predict the trend, how does the modern workforce and the social ramifications of these waivers fit together? 
Yes, well, I think you made some excellent points, and I do reference that in my paper that you know we are moving more and more towards what some economists have called a gig economy. You know, people aren't working the traditional nine to five jobs anymore. Uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the protections offered by unions that we saw, you know, in years past have been eroded, and. To the point about you know being unsure of who your employer is and whether you're an independent contractor, yes, those issues are becoming far more prevalent. Um, also, more prevalent now are temporary workers, you know, contract workers. A lot of companies are not hiring people to be outright employees. A lot of you know companies that require you know laborers, uh, tradespeople, they'll go through staffing agencies first. And you know, once someone's worked through a staffing agency at the facility for a few months. They'll hire them on. And, uh, you know, because of that, I think this issue is important because there are more people temping now. There are more people in these temporary jobs. And, you know, the social policy, as you referenced at the show's beginning, you know, behind workers' compensation is that, you know, it's the grand bargain. You know, labor concedes some things, business interests concede some things. And, you know, the system generally works to keep injured workers, uh, you know, keep them out of destitution and poverty, and to allow business to kind of calculate that risk. Um, These waivers really do chip away at that. You know, as you referenced earlier, you know, you have a situation where there's two losers and a winner. Uh, The two losers are obviously the injured worker who, you know, maybe is getting extremely shorted with, uh, you know, having to accept comp benefits as his only remedy against a negligent third party. And, you know, the other big loser is his direct employer and their workers' comp carrier, because they're essentially being forced to pay for that third party's negligence. And there's absolutely no hope of recovery or subrogation. So I do think that these you know, the kind of social ramifications of these waivers uh, will come to light a little bit more. And I think we saw that with Vitaly. You know, my prediction would be, and if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, that I think, you know, we are going to see a minority position emerge. I believe that the Supreme Court of New Jersey will uphold the appellate court's decision in Vitaly, and in effect, we'll have two positions. And I think this might embolden some, you know, claimants' lawyers and plaintiffs' lawyers in states where this issue hasn't been litigated and there is no appellate case law to, you know, challenge these waivers. And uh, we might really see over the next 15 years or so uh, a real rollback with these waivers if other courts start going the way of the New Jersey appellate court. So, uh, you know, I I think that these are all important things to think about, you know, in your practice representing injured workers, you know, and also if you represent employers and you're helping them draft employment contracts, you know, these are all important considerations. Well, we are coming to a close. I really thank you uh, very much, Alex, not only for being a guest on Workers' Comp Matters, but for your paper. It, uh, you know, I was familiar with the Horner case, the Boston Edison case uh, that you referenced, and I was surprised that uh, our uh, high court in Massachusetts did not strike down this waiver as either being void against public policy or unconscionable. But as, as you point out, uh, there is uh, there's another side to the story, and that's what makes for cases and makes for what lawyers do. So good luck for the rest of uh, the short time you have left as a student, your, your finals, your bar exam, and uh, thank you for being a part of our show. So to those of you listening, please tune in for the next edition of Workers' Comp Matters and go out and make it a day that matters. 
Thanks for listening to Workers' Cop Matters today on the Legal Talk Network, hosted by attorney Alan S. Pierce, where we try to make a difference in workers' comp legal cases for people injured at work. Be sure to listen to other Workers' Comp Matters shows on the Legal Talk Network, your only choice for legal talk. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.